morning. We're starting a new chapter in our systematic study of Luke. It's a, been a rich and profound gospel, and although we're less than halfway to getting through Luke's gospel, uh, we're really about halfway through at the halfway point for Jesus's public ministry. If you'll recall from our, our studies, he lived in relative obscurity for about the first 30 years of his life in Nazareth in Galilee. Luke 3.23 tells us that he was about 30 when he began that ministry. And very soon after, Jesus is going to begin his long trek to Jerusalem, just as the synagogues all throughout Israel faced the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to do his, the same thing, and he's going to set his face towards Jerusalem. And in Luke 9.51, it's going to tell us that Jesus will be determined to go to Jerusalem. But he will uh, go there to confront the religious establishment head on. And we all know that this wasn't an accidental meeting, or it wasn't a chance encounter between the Sadducees and the Pharisees or anything like that, but it is a divinely directed appointment for him to go there. Luke 18, 31 through 32 confirms that. Acts 2, 23, 4, 27 through 28, as do many many other texts in Scripture. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we're about to see a couple of different things in our text upon our first reading that it seems to be just kind of this simple narrative, but it really is the beginning of the end, meaning that it is the tail end of his Galilean ministry, and it's going to be transitioning into a Judean ministry. And just so we're clear, those are regions. Galilee would be at the north uh, in, in Israel, lying due north of the Samaritan region, Samaria, and below Samaria would be Judah, and in the epicenter of that area would be Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of the religious life of the Jews, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so we're not going to only see this transition from a Galilean ministry into a Judean ministry, but we're going to see this transition from Jesus being the sole preacher to him using the, uh, his 12 apostles to proclaim the kingdom of God. And then even further than that, we're going to see him send out 70 at a time to proclaim the good news that the Messiah had arrived on earth. And then even further yet, when we get beyond Pentecost, he'll send out disciple makers and witnesses to the kingdom. And they will go out by the power of the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the ends of the earth. And the mission that they received then is the same mission as our church here today. 2,000 years later, it hasn't changed. And that is to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be justified or have a right standing before God. And by a gift of his grace, you can now have peace with him. The message that Christ died for your sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And they preach the good news that Jesus has come to restore sight to the blind, proclaim release to the captives, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He didn't commission them to go put on some skits or do an act or a dance routine or tell them uh, that they need to use props and gimmicks and smokes and lights and all those types of things that the church likes to get into today. I actually read of a church in their children's ministry. They made a separate baptismal out of a fire truck, and when the kid gets dunked in the water, it has 
confetti cannons that blast confetti cannons, uh, confetti into the air. I mean, yeah. But they were simply commissioned to do exactly what Jesus came to do himself, and that was to proclaim the kingdom of God. But I want us to read our text this morning. I want to get our heading so that we can understand what's going on here. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. We're only going to get through 1 through 9 this morning, so I left a couple verses for Steve to pick up on me for uh, next week there. But Luke chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And if you're there with me, I invite you to stand, if you're able to, for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. God's word says this, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, As you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We just pray that this morning our minds would be instructed and our hearts would be just uplifted to worship you with the glory and the honor that you are due. Father, help us to, to put away the things of this world that so easily grab our attention and help us to focus in on your word. Transform us and help us to have the mind of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever played outside with a group of kids before and and you don't have any sort of toys or you don't have any volleyball nets or basketballs, and and a few of you who may be of age here, uh, maybe you didn't have a pocket full of marbles or jacks to play with, uh, invariably you could potentially be playing Red Rover, Red Rover, and so and so over, right? And so when you first start to get yourselves together in your lines and you start facing each other and you're holding hands and you're getting your walls of people together across from one another, your motive, your your idea that you want to do is you're looking for the people with the biggest and strongest people on that team, right? You, You want to be on that team that's going to have like these walls of men standing there, these Popeye forearms and all those types of things so that nobody is going to break through your fortification. They're not going to break through your chain. And so you're looking for kids that are bigger and stronger than you, and and hopefully you end up on that winning team. 
And so you're looking for certain characteristics and certain strengths in the people that you want to be on the team with. Well, that is completely the opposite of how Jesus Christ selected the 12, right? If there ever had to be a band of misfits and complete opposites ever assembled and placed on the same team together, it had to be the 12 apostles. And in all honesty, if you and I were allowed to choose the 12, who they would be, and we lived in the first century, this is not the group we would have picked. It's not the ones you, had, you and I would have selected. But this is exactly how God operates. He loves to take limited resources. He loves to take impossible situations. And he loves to turn them around for his glory and for the well-being of others. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 28 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. So Jesus chose this band of 12 men, this most unlikely group of men, and he took them from their various diverse backgrounds, and he used them to change the world forever. Howard Hendrickson, a commentator, wrote this of this group of men. He said, quote, We cannot fail to be impressed with the majesty of our Savior, whose drawing power, incomparable wisdom, and matchless love were so astounding that he was able to gather around himself and unite into one family men of entirely different and, at times, even opposite backgrounds and temperaments. Included in this little band was Peter the Optimist, but also Thomas the Pessimist. You had Simon, the one-time zealot, hating taxes and eager to overflow the Roman government. But you also had Matthew, who voluntarily offered his tax-collecting services to the same Roman government. Yet Peter, John, Matthew, destined to become renowned through their writings. But you also had James the Less, who remains obscure, but must have fulfilled his mission, end quote. This ought to be great hope for you. This ought to cause you no doubt in God's ability to use you to proclaim the gospel. He can take anyone, and I mean absolutely anyone, including this band of diverse and even opposing background men, these sinful, frail instruments, and use them to proclaim his kingdom in a hostile world. Listen, you will never be called upon by God to accomplish any task that he will not give you and you will not have more than enough and abundant resources available to you in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this group of 12 men, this, that is true of them, it's what's true of us, is true of them as well. Christ is give, going to give them absolutely all they need to, to fulfill their mission. And we're going to see them go into basic training, if you will. We're going to see this pre-Pentecost dress rehearsal for these guys who will then later go and fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave them. So in verse 1, in, in verse 2 of chapter 9 there, it says, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now, just so you get a little bit of chronology here in your mind, from chapter 8 
to chapter 9, Jesus makes one more, one last trip to Nazareth again that Luke doesn't record for us here. Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6 records that for us. But Jesus goes back to his own hometown. He heals a few people. They hear his words. They marvel at everything that he says and he does. But they still don't get it. They can't even get past that the Messiah could even come from a family that had lived among them. They say, his brothers, don't we know them? His sisters, they're here among us. They they reject him once again. But what a merciful act of our Lord to do that. The last time he was there, if you remember, they wanted to throw him over a cliff because of what he said to them. But how patient, how merciful is our Lord and Savior to do that? To go back once again, but yet they remain skeptical and even critical of him. And so Luke admits this particular occurrence for us. But here he calls this 12 together. He's calling his inner circle together, and it says that he gave them power and authority. Now, this expression, power and authority, it is unique to Luke in that if we would look at the corresponding accounts in Matthew 10 and Mark chapter 6, they both say that that Jesus gave them authority, only whereas Luke will say that he gave them power and authority. And we shouldn't really think anything beyond this except for the fact that Luke is more comprehensive in his description here, because in Matthew and Mark both, the disciples certainly do demonstrate the power that Jesus gave them. But power here would be in the sense of the ability to do it, or the capacity. And the word here in the Greek is dunamis. And it is where we get our English word dynamite, right? Explosive. They got force. They got strength. It's an explosive ability in what he wants them to do. And then authority here is the right to do something. They have the permission, or they have the delegated influence or jurisdiction to do something. It reminded me of the police in Britain. If you think about a police officer in the UK, you think about these guys running around with the whistle and the baton, you know, blowing, stop, you know, the kind of the the bobbies, I think is what they're called, right? They certainly have the authority granted to them by the government to maintain law and order, to make arrests and all those sorts of things. But when they are confronted with a terrorist or a psychopath with an AK-47, they absolutely have no power. And so in recent years, much to the uh, Scottish people and the English people, they are starting to slowly give their officers some firearms to be able to defend against this. They need to have enough firepower, if you will, to back up their authority. But Jesus is granting the 12 power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. They are delegated complete and total uh, domination over the physical world and the spiritual world. In fact, if you read Matthew 10.8, the uh, corresponding account, it goes so far to even tell us that they're going to be able to raise the dead. But the powers granted to them, they serve a purpose. They weren't just divinely bestowed powers in order to create shock and awe and wonder and excitement, but they were designed to point to something greater. And that something greater was the message that they were proclaiming. The signs and wonders were used to validate or to confirm that what they were saying was absolutely true. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. The miracles were never isolated from the message. They serve to confirm the message. How many times you see on TV these so-called miracle workers and faith healers and all those types of things, but you never, ever hear the gospel. You don't hear about sin and salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The twelve were commissioned to preach because that is what Jesus' mission was as well, right? In Luke 4.43, Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Because verse 2, it tells us that he sent them out to proclaim, or the Greek word here is caruso. There's a t-shirt company called Caruso, right? They were here to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. He's sending them out to herald or to publicly announce that the truth, that the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is here. What the Old Testament pointed to is realized in Jesus Christ. What is a shadow is now substance. But it also says that he sent them out to proclaim and to perform healing. I want you to think about this with me for just a second. If Jesus Christ wanted to confirm his message of the gospel through the 12 apostles, could he have done it another way? Could they have not gone out to the lost sheep of Israel and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then by the power of Christ set a bush ablaze and with fire and not have it be consumed? Could they have done that? Could they have gone out and said to the people that the Messiah is here and his name is Jesus, and then by the power of Christ with just a word, have a mountain melt like wax? Could they have not gone out and called the people to repentance and reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ, and then by the power of Christ, call down fire from heaven to confirm their message? But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't give them those kind of powers. There are an innumerable amount of ways in which Jesus could have shown his power through his messengers. But he told them to heal. He told them, alleviate human suffering. He told the apostles to cast out those demons, go heal the sick, raise the dead, comfort the afflicted. Ladies and gentlemen, does this not demonstrate the compassion of our God? Does this not demonstrate how merciful he is to us? The God of the universe who created the heavens and the earth in six days, who can shut the mouths of lions and totally consume an altar with fire that is drenched deep with water. He chose to assemble his messengers and confirm that by alleviating human suffering. These miracles that the apostles are performing aren't just miracles in and of themselves but they tell us something about the character of Jesus Christ. They tell us that he is merciful. Christ is just as compassionate to you and me. 
Look, you may be going through your life right now, and you might be thinking, you know what? Things aren't going the way I thought they would in my life. I thought I'd be farther ahead. You know, I thought my kids would turn out better than they are. I thought my marriage or my family or my kids, my health or whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Dramatic pause. You fill in the blank that I thought my blank would be better than what it was. You just thought things would be different. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you are abiding with him, you are trusting in his promises, there is always one thing you can be thankful for, and that is for salvation through Jesus Christ. And that in and of itself is a mercy to you. The only reason that you have a love for Jesus in any capacity whatsoever is because he first loved you. If he is all you have, he is more than enough, and your only proper response is to honor him with your life and give thanks for it. I'm hearing a little feedback still. 1 Peter 5.7 says that we are to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So that means whatever it is, if it's discouragement, if it's despair, if it's suffering, whatever it is, whatever causes you to lie awake at night, You are to give to God and to trust that he knows exactly what he's doing. But Jesus demonstrates his compassion and mercy to humanity through the healing power that he has bestowed upon the apostles. But there's another thing that we need to consider here for ourselves personally, in that the miracles confirming the message, it has to do with us both personally and it has to do with us corporately as a church. If the healings and the deeds that the apostles are performing, in fact, are confirming the message that they are proclaiming, does the manner of your life validate your confession of him as Lord and Savior? And I'm not talking about your external visible morality that everyone can see, because you can easily fool everyone to think that you're a convert by mere visible external morality. Judas Iscariot was one of the best, so much so that at the Lord's Supper, he said that one of you is going to betray me, and they all look around and they say, not I, Lord, not I. We don't have recorded for the fact that they all said, yep, that's Judas. We know he's a hypocrite, right? He can fake anybody. What I'm talking about, and what I'm asking you is, do you have a love for Jesus Christ? When you sin, does it repulse you that you've offended God? Do you live in such a way that you're seeking to bring about the glory of God? Does the inside match the outside? Those are very personal questions that you and you alone can answer. But then we have to ask that same question of ourselves corporately, as a church. People aren't coming in here and seeing a bunch of miracles happening and seeing the glory cloud come out of the heating and ventilation system here and saying that what we're saying is true because we saw that smoke and mirror show. But they're coming in here and they're looking at us as a community of believers and they're looking for our love for one another. They're looking for our fellowship with one another to see if that we are actually living out what we are proclaiming. So if someone to walk in here and somebody looks at us, would they know that we are telling the truth in Christ by looking at Grace Fellowship Church? Would they know that we are Christians by our love, and that the way we have for one another, and that we are bearing one another's burdens? 
Are you participating in this body of Christ by showing hospitality to one another outside of Sunday morning? And when people look at that and they think, wow, that church over there, they really love each other because they're spending time with each other all the time. Would people know that what we are saying is true by looking at us as a church body? If the first part isn't true of you personally, it's not going to be true of us corporately. But the deeds confirm the words. The miracles confirm the message, just as your inward meditations confirm your confession. And we see in verses 3, 4, and 5, we see that Jesus is going to equip them to accomplish this mission. Verse 3 says, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And for, as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now to say that they are to travel light is an understatement, but you could say that they were to take two things with them, faith and trust. Right, But this prohibition of provisions could have been for two purposes. And I think the one major purpose is very obvious in that they were to solely depend upon the Lord for everything. They were to depend completely on the Lord for his provision, for every need, whether it be for food, clothing, lodging, whatever it is, even safety. They were to trust the Lord with all their heart and lean not on their own understanding, as Proverbs 3, 5 they were, says, they were to look at the Lord to supply all their needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, as Philippians 4.19 says. In fact, Jesus is going to remind them later on in Luke 22.35 when he says, When I sent you without money, belt, bag, and sandals, did you not lack anything? Did you? And they said, no, nothing. We lack nothing. So the first reason that they're going to travel light and travel with pretty much the clothes on their back, is that they are going to do so to solely rely upon Jesus for every provision. But the second reason he may have told them to travel light is that he didn't want them to abuse their power for personal gain. He didn't want them to look like the philosophers of the day who would go around knocking from door to door and begging for money and looking for, uh, or looking like the false missionaries who were doing the same thing for sordid gain and trying to make a profit off of their uh, oratory skills. They called it rhetoric back in the day. And there are still plenty of so-called pastors out there today that are in ministry. They're looking to make a name for themselves rather than for Christ. They, they may be great orators, and they preach a great sermon, but it'll make you just want to drop everything you, you have and go into the world. But they actually do a poor job of actually shepherding the people that God is giving them and bearing their burdens. And still there's others that are buying multi-million dollar homes and $65 million Learjets, all for the sake of ministry. There are plenty of charlatans, but there are not enough proclaimers. It was true back then in the first century. It's still true today. And so it's possible that Jesus said, I don't want you to even look like the snake oil salesman of the day. I want you to travel light. Don't carry a money bag. Don't carry nothing. And don't give them the wrong impression that you are there. Just freely give as you have freely received. But then in verse 5, Jesus gives them instructions and what they are to do for those who do not receive that message. He says, if they do not listen to what you have to tell them, 
then when you leave that town, you shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is a Jewish custom that they would practice as they would travel around and across a foreign land. And as they would leave whatever country or region or whatever it was, they would shake off the dust off their clothing and their sandals as an expression to say that even the dust was polluted from that pagan land. And they didn't want any of it to come in and contaminate the Jewish lands that they were entering. It's like saying that all those pagan people have the cootie bugs and we got to get rid of them, right? And Jesus says to his 12 apostles, he says that they are to do the same to the unbelieving Jews. In a nutshell, he's saying that if they don't believe the message that you preach, and they still don't believe after you've performed their miracles, all those miracles in their midst, you shake that dust off your feet as a testimony against them, just like they do the Gentiles. Matthew chapter 10, it emphasizes the detriment of rejecting the message of Jesus Christ, and that when they do reject it, It's going to be better for them and more tolerable for them in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. There's a high price to pay for rejection. Final, complete, severe judgment will come upon those who reject the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd be negligent in my duties if I did not tell you that the same severe judgment will come upon you if you do not repent of your sins and you turn to God through Jesus Christ. We are all one heartbeat away from that day, and there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. You aren't going to get to heaven by your good works that you have done. You aren't going to stand before God because of all the money that you've given to charity. The pearly gates aren't going to swing wide open for you uh, because you prayed a prayer a long time ago. The only way that you're going to get to the Father is through the Son because He is the resurrection and He is the life. He is the way and He is the truth and no one will come to the Father except through Him. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so if you repent of your sins, that is you turn away from your sins and you turn towards God, you cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe in his name, trust in his finished work at the cross, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. But if you reject that message, if you reject what I'm saying to you, on that day that you die, you too, like those rejecting the 12 apostles, You can expect nothing from God but final, complete, eternal judgment. And neutrality with Jesus is just the same as rejection. There's no middle ground with Jesus Christ. And so the apostles, they are to give those cities who reject them a solemn warning. Shake the dust off your sandals, as if to say that they are as pagan as a gentle land if they reject what you tell them. It's an expression of... Of judgment. And then verse 6, they simply go out just as Jesus had given them instructions, right? It says, departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. They do exactly as they were instructed to do, because in verses 7 through 9, we see an interesting response from the flurry of preaching and healing. Verse 7 says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. 
and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. And so Herod Antipas here, who is the son of Herod the Great, starts to hear the reports of all that is going on in Galilee. And that word tetrarch there, it just simply means one-fourth of a region that Herod Antipas rules over. Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and so his domain was divided amongst his four sons, and one of those sons is the Herod that we see here, Herod Antipas. He rules over Galilee and Perea. But the preaching and the healing is starting to make it to the doorsteps of the government. And it's obvious by our text that the apostles, they are giving all the glory and all the praise to Jesus for everything that's going on. Because Herod isn't asking, hey, who's these 12 guys running around uh, my countryside here? He isn't asking who these group of guys are, right? He's not asking to do a, a background check on Peter, wondering how this simple fisherman could be transformed to heal demons or heal the sick or anything like that. But he's asking the question, who is this man whom I hear such things? And we're going to see as we go through chapter 9 that this is a common thread that runs through it. Herod asks, who is this man in verse 9? Jesus will ask his disciples who the people say he is in verse 18. Jesus will ask Peter directly, who do you say that I am in verse 20? And then finally, just in case there was any doubt about the question of who it is, the Father from heaven is going to declare exactly who Jesus is at the transfiguration in verse 35. But Herod's confused here. Herod doesn't know exactly what to think because he's hearing all kinds of stories. Someone tells him, hey, it's Elijah. Oh, no, it's another prophet. But the most troubling one that he hears is that it is John the Baptist whom he had beheaded. And so his guilty conscience is starting to plague them. And when you're in power, you're a little bit, you know, you're worried about a target on your back. Everybody's ready to take you out all the time. You're already paranoid. So he's hearing that it might be John the Baptist. Oh, no, right? John the Baptist, he said, was righteous and holy, as Mark 6.20 tells us. He's getting a little nervous that John might actually still be alive and coming back to bring judgment upon him or who knows what. But he asked the most important question that any one of us could ever ask. And it is the most important question that you personally will ever answer. How you respond to that question determines your eternity. It is that important. Who is this man? Will you be like Peter who answers the question, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Will you be like the Roman centurion at the cross who said, Truly, this man is the Son of God. Will you answer like doubting Thomas and say, My Lord and my God. Or you answer like Paul did in Colossians chapter 1. He said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, 
having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Will you reconcile yourself to God this morning? Because it is only through Jesus Christ that you will be able to stand before God holy and blameless. He's not the pretty boy Breck Jesus. He's not the Jesus of, that you hear of on TV that wants to keep you healthy and wealthy. He's not the some sage that has some good principles by which we might try to live by and try to adhere. He's not the mushy-gushy, sentimental Jesus that you hear on the radio all the time. He's not the self-help guru who's here to have you have your best life now. But he is the Son of God. He is the Master. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it is absolutely critical that you know within the deepest recesses of your heart precisely who he is because there is fixed a day upon which every single one of us will die and then comes the judgment. And ladies and gentlemen, I just want to tell you that these hands have held children from a month old die all the way to men 90 years old die and in between. And you do not know when you will die. But upon that day, you will stand before judgment of God. So the question is laid upon your feet this morning. Who is this man, Jesus? How you answer that question hangs in eternity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there is someone here today that does not truly know you, and who has never bent the knee and submitted their life to the Lordship of Christ, that they would do so today. I pray for those who would have a form of godliness, but have denied its power thereof, that they would have a zeal for you that comes from their heart. I pray for those who are growing weary and doing good, that you might bathe them in your sustaining grace, so that they might press on to the upward call in Jesus Christ. And Father, I just pray that you would help us as a church to maintain unity, to be of one mind, to be of one spirit, spurring one another on to good works for the fame of your name and for your glory and for your honor. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be having a